Hello everyone and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Sawar Shah, one of the co-founders of PharmSense, a clinical pharmacist and a graduate entry medical student. Today's episode is titled, A Day in the Life of a General Practice Pharmacist and PhD Fellow. I am excited to introduce our guest speaker today, David Mehdizadeh. So David is a prescribing general practice pharmacist and he also has a special interest in anticholinergic burden in older people with frailty. David is conducting research within this area with his role as a PhD fellow at the National Institute Health Research Yorkshire Humber Patient Safety Translational Research Centre at the University of Bradford. I hope everyone takes away some points of learning today and those interested in PhD take away some useful tips as well. So David, thank you so much for taking part today. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? You okay? Good, thank you. I'm excited for this episode. I'm sure you've got a wealth of knowledge to share. So um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, David, and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Before I do that, uh, well done for pronouncing my name correctly and also (laughs) with that long introduction. So yeah, pharmacist in general practice, uh, clinical pharmacist, uh, currently conducting a PhD, been doing that for two years now. Um, Mm. And uh, at the University of Bradford and um, in partnership with the University of Leeds and also Bradford Hospitals Trust as well. Um, So, yeah, um, I first graduated from the University of Bradford back in 2012. I did the sandwich course at Bradford Mm. um, and did my two segments of pre-reg in separate sectors. So first one in hospital, Guys and St. Thomas Hospitals in London. Uh, and the second half was in a community pharmacy in North Leeds in Bramhope. Um, went on to um, Weldrick's Pharmacy, which is a family-owned community pharmacy group in South Yorkshire. Um, went through the ranks there as a relief pharmacist and then eventually into branch pharmacist roles, which essentially is a manager um, into different positions. Um, did the clinical diploma at the University of Bradford uh, and then did the prescribing course at the University of Manchester and mm. then entered general practice um, for a few years, and that's when I entered my PhD. Uh, but I still con- I still un- undertake my clinical role in general practice alongside my PhD. Mm, that sounds amazing. It sounds like you've experienced all three of the main sectors, really, um, and now you're currently conducting a PhD alongside your general practice role, which is really exciting. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your working week then, um, how you balance your PhD alongside working? Is it a full-time um, PhD? So, yeah, it is a full-time PhD. Um, the university and the centre do allow us to maintain some clinical elements because, of course, mm. They both complement one another, really, the clinical element and the academic role. Um, but predominantly, it is, uh, I'd say, four days a week uh, in, in research in the university uh, and one day a week uh, in, in the surgery. So I do Fridays in the doctor's surgery and the rest of the mm. week a PhD. Of course, a PhD you're doing all hours of the day and all, all hours of the night and, of course, weekend. Um, but, yeah, typically one or two days a week in general practice. That's how I split my okay. working week. Yeah, so I think that's very good, maintaining some um, clinical elements as well and working in practice. I think it's a good balance because um, a lot of people, they might find it a bit daunting just going full-time into PhD and sort of losing out on 
working as a pharmacist. So I think it's very good that you have a role that's um, you're able to maintain both um, on the go as well. And I think it may also help you with your PhD as well. So um, in terms of your PhD, could you tell us a little bit about it? So what is it that you currently researching on? Yeah, so ultimately we're looking at um, trying to make ways of uh, prescribing in the elderly a bit more safer if we can. We know that mm. the older people are generally more susceptible to adverse health outcomes when we're prescribing excessive medicines, for example, or high-risk medicines. Mm. Uh, it's got particular focus on anticholinergic burden uh, in older people yeah. with frailty, so anticholinergics being medicines which uh, block the, the neurotransmitter acetylcholine at the synapses, so, uh, which blocks the involuntary muscle movements in the stomach mm. or in, in the lungs, for example. So we know these medicines can be very effective for their anti-muscarinic um, activity. However, we also know, particularly in the elderly, there's quite an extensive side effect profile. Uh, and and mm-hmm. as we are aware, it can be quite debilitating for older people with sedation, constipation, dry dry mouth, yeah. dry, uh, dry eyes. But more severe outcomes such as cognition decline, uh, death, falls, hospitalization. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're focusing on how to support clinicians with reducing anticholinergic burden in, in, in mm-hmm. older people with frailty with a focus on the development of informatic tools or health informatics to support prescribers mm. uh, or alerting prescribers to uh, potentially at-risk patients. Mm. So I think it's a great time to be conducting research in this area and it's a very pertinent thing to do as well. Um, I think with the ageing population that we do have and also polypharmacy being such a huge thing now, I think it's a very important um, area to be uh, doing research within. So um, I think you've chosen a very good sort of PhD to do it in. Um, anticholinergic burden as well is quite a buzzword at the moment. Um, a lot of people discuss about it. You see it in studies and journals all the time now as well. Um, even in myself, uh, I see it within secondary care. You do see it a lot, the anticholinergic burden leading to falls in the elderly patients and a lot of times it's medications that may not be appropriate anymore. So um, it is it is important. And um, it's quite interesting that you are looking at informatics as well. I mean, informatics is a huge area now and a lot more pharmacists are getting into that area as well. Um, so in terms of this specific PhD, um, what made you choose this specific area for yourself? Is it something that interests you then or...? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was a long time coming really doing this PhD. Uh, I waited some time to start it. I mean, I'm, I'm 32 years old now. I started it two years mm. ago. Um, I wanted yeah. to do something straight out of university in 2012, but I wasn't able to do it back then. Um, started a family, uh, needed needed to buy a house and so forth. So I ended up working yeah. in practice. Um, I built up a, an interest in, in, in health informatics and tools, particularly in general practice, actually. Um, yeah. uh, First hand, I was experiencing the difficulties we have with all this data, with all this information, yeah. uh, and, and how do we make the best decision for each patient? And of course, how do we make a, a personal decision or an individual decision for each patient? patient? And that's where tools uh, can be really handy. Um, mm. And I, I was finding myself using more and more tools to make hopefully better and informed decisions, but of course, supporting decisions alongside the patients as well. So mm. when when this opportunity came along, um, it wasn't really advertised as anticholinergic yeah. burden or frailty. It was just advertised as a very broad term uh, or a very broad title uh, along the lines of, I think it was 
um, digital decision support for safer prescribing. Mm. Um, yeah. And therefore, and therefore, we could take that title however we wanted and develop something in this in this uh, domain really to support safer prescribing. So yeah, that's how I ended up uh, getting into this PhD. Yeah, and I think um, you mentioned about informatics and tools as well, and uh, we tend to use tools all the time. I mean, in your general, in your line of working as a general practice, uh, you must use tools all the time. And for example, even simple little calculators such as creatinine clearance calculators and things like that, it is commonly used now in practice. And I think an important thing to stress is um, clinicians alongside tools, we always should um, take clinical judgments and take patients' thoughts and beliefs into account as well. It's quite good yourself being a GP pharmacist then as well, because your role as a general practice pharmacist must really help supplement your sort of knowledge in the area that you're doing your PhD in. I mean, anticholinergic burden is something that you must do um, quite frequently um, looking at on your medication reviews and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reason why we're, we're focusing on this area is because we know from the literature and from the textbooks uh, and from the patient, actually, that anticholinergics are not very well tolerated in some patients. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, amongst clinicians, it can be one of the most difficult areas to de-prescribe, really. Um, a lot of these mm. anticholinergic medicines are, are medicines which are required for depression or, or for an allergy or for, uh, to, to stabilize the bladder. So stopping these medicines mm. can be incredibly difficult when patients need them or feel like they need them. Um, so mm. we're trying to research, you know, ultimately their association with, with adverse outcomes uh, and try and yeah. educate clinicians and patients with the benefits mm. of these medicines, but also the negative side to these medicines and, and ultimately if patients are aware of the negative mm. side as well um, they can make a decision but ultimately the tool is there because clinicians but off, off the top of their head struggle with identifying yeah. anticholinergic medicines um, we use resources online for example or on paper for example but um, mm. we need tools really like the creatine clearance that you said earlier, where we can quickly, mm. within the clinical system, identify someone's anticholinergic burden score, for example, uh, mm. and see and see whether that would influence the decision to stop or change or reduce a medicine. Um, and ultimately, um, my, cl- my clinical role complements this PhD because I'm able to develop the tools uh, and test them in the live system. So system one that we use in, in general yeah. practice. In, uh, in Doncaster yeah. I'm able to literally test uh, on mm. site straight away yeah I think tools is a um, very good thing to have as well um, I think we're quite lucky in a sense as pharmacists we do learn about anticholinergic burden and we do know side effect profiles of medication um, so it would be I think very useful for other sort of clinicians that may not have um, the same sort of level of um, study into these sorts of topics and medications. Um, Another thing is there's a lot of medications that do in fact cause anticholinergic burden and contribute to the score as well. Um, Sometimes when you look up drugs, um, I frequently use a tool online, the ACB calculator. Sometimes there's medications that you wouldn't think would contribute to it and they do contribute to the ACB score. Um, and also, I think for clinicians, um, yourself can comment more on this. 
if you're looking at a, um, if you're doing a medication review and the patient's on quite a number of medications, for example, they're on 10 plus medications, sometimes you may just overlook the ACB score. There might be multiple drugs contributing to their um, anticholinergic burden score. And of course, we know from studies, um, a raised ACB score in an elderly, frail patient um, a lot of times does lead to patient harm and sometimes even death. So I think it's very good that you are um, looking at the informatics side of things um, because it does help um, overall as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just one point there. Um, mm. Well, two points, actually. The first point being you mentioned pharmacists are probably more accustomed to like, anticholinergics and, and the burden yeah. and the adverse outcomes. But actually, our research has shown that on some occasions, clinicians or even pharmacists may not be aware that medicines have anticholinergic properties. Mm. They may focus on the more traditional ones like amitriptyline or oxybutynin, for example. But like you mm. said, there are some other medicines which have potential anticholinergic properties. And individually using those medicines, it might be fine. But when you accumulate those medicines, yeah. uh, when the score rises, and, and each medicine has a different level of potency, it's that final kind of global score that we're concerned about because as it rises, it is associated with bad outcomes according to large-scale studies worldwide mm. um and yeah uh, the second point i forgot what the second point is now but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah no worries. yeah that's fine it's just a, um, reiterating the point really how big of a issue it can be um and how important it is to look at these things i mean in your current role as a general practice and your experience with system one um, does it currently have an anticholinergic burden tool built in or does is there any alerts or anything like that at all? Not so much in anticholinergic burden score, um, but yeah. sometimes the alerts will pop up and say this me- this medicine has anticholinergic properties. Um, mm. But we know from research that f- um, something called alert fatigue, clinicians just yeah. receive these pop-ups uh, un- and basically click them off the screen because they're annoying. Yeah. Uh, we're trying mm. to develop tools which are more meaningful, um, user-friendly, one- and therefore yeah. our research is around not only developing tools, but also developing tools that clinicians will use uh, and will find beneficial and useful. So um, the point you mentioned about clinicians just clicking off one message is something that I've seen myself Mm. in secondary care. Sometimes the number of messages that do pop up, it can be quite frustrating when you're trying to do a simple job prescribing one item and you've got to pop um, click through um, five different checkboxes saying um, to approve the message. So yeah, it would be good to make something a bit more user-friendly and um, more streamlined and efficient to do, really. Um, so you've worked uh, as a community pharmacist as well. Um, we've talked a little bit about the sort of informatics in primary care. Do you think as a community pharmacist, you would benefit from an anticholinergic burden sort of screening system on the PMR system? I think so. Um, as I always say, community pharmacists are the eyes and ears of, of primary care really and we, we mm. get to see patients maybe once or twice three times a year maybe um, community pharmacy people are coming in all the time so constantly analyzing and reviewing medicines and clinically assessing medicines and if, if you could in community pharmacy identify someone who's yeah. probably being tipped over the edge really in terms of anticholinergic burden then we would welcome some feedback back to the surgery um, with some suggestions from the pharmacist in, in community mm. pharmacy say you're a bit concerned uh mm. you've you've seen mr khan or mr smith um being a bit uneasy on his feet recently and actually these medicines he's taking may well be contributing 
um, yeah. X, y, X, Y, and Z may well be anticholinergic. Shall we review these? And I think tools mm. in community pharmacy to support in your PMR systems uh, would be fantastic. Yeah. The challenge we have is that there isn't a consensus approach to identifying or scoring anticholinergic drugs worldwide. There's many different mm. scales, and you've mentioned the ACB, um, but there's yeah. about 20 other ones. Um, okay. The reason why the clinical systems like System 1 haven't implemented one into the system is because we're still exploring which is the most superior kind of scale, if you like. Um, mm. But for the time being, you know, the ACB is, is very effective. It's good. Um, mm. But I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen it already in the systems um, at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's a very good PhD you are doing. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that you allowed me to be part of it by interviewing me as well. Um, I think in terms of PhD, for myself, I'm not too very knowledgeable on PhDs in terms of funding. And I'm sure many listeners um, today will be wanting to know more information. So um, in terms of your PhD, um, how, how would one go about sourcing funding for a PhD? Is it easy to do or what what's the best advice you could give to someone that's interested in doing a PhD? Okay, so in, with regards to funding, personally, I didn't apply for my own funding. I applied mm. for a, a position which was already funded by NIHR. Um, they provided uh, the, the the bench fees and the and the tuition fees and also kind of like a research fund and a small stipend, which is a tax free salary. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it's not as much as a as a pharmacist in practice, but it, it helps pays the bills if you like. Um, mm. So so personally, I don't have experience of applying for funding. However, I am aware yeah. of people who have taken a uh, a project title or an area that they're really interested in going to yeah. a university and presenting a, uh, an idea and working with them to to apply for funding and uh, if you mm. wanted to speak with me um, on twitter for example i'd be more than happy to go into more detail about those avenues or where you can apply mm. for funding for example there is something called pr uk which is pharmacy research uk which sponsor kind of uh, pharmacists mm. in, in doing research but i think mm. putting funding to one side i think my most important advice would be if you're going to consider further research or, or even a phd make sure it's an area that you are really interested in yeah. because on those dark gloomy days when you can't pull yourself off, off the floor <laughs> when it, uh, mm. to motivate yourself to get the work done it needs to be a topic where that you enjoy yeah. or, or at least semi-enjoy so that's number one uh, number two is, uh, of course, identify a suitable academic centre or university. Um, but more importantly, in my opinion, go for some supervisors that you feel will be compatible with the way you work or your your um, uh, who have the similar kind of goals and, and, and desires as yeah. yourself in terms of research. Um, because those supervisors will help kind of uplift your research and, and carry it forward. Um, mm. So for myself personally, I chose uh, Bradford. Because of course it's uh, the best pharmacy school in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I went Bradford as well, so um, I, I don't mind you saying that. <laughs> uh, one of my supervisors is Dr. Duncan Petty, who's very, um, very famous in the in the world of primary yeah. care pharmacy. Um, formerly uh, owned the company called um, PSS, um, mm. and is famous in this field, I suppose. In, in, primary care but also the other supervisors were great and i've got a new supervisor called peter gardner who's a psychologist another supervisor mm. called dr faisal who's a biostatistician and one called owen johnson who's health informatics expert at leeds so it was a great phd yeah. 
uh, and a yeah. great mix across cent- different centers. So mm. for me, for me, that was really appealing because we um, combined pharmacy uh, and healthcare with computer science at Leeds. Yeah. Um, so just to summarize, they're the main things really to consider if you're going for a PhD yeah. or further research. Um, mm. So uh, finally, uh, the NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, have great training programs for PhDs. Uh, you can even mm. apply for uh, PhD fellowships where you are paid a similar salary to a pharmacist in some cases, but but yeah. you are able to research at the same time and get a PhD. Um, mm. And if you are interested in learning more about that, there there is something called the NIHR Training Advocates, uh, and the, and there are two advocates in the pharmacy field. Um, uh, one one being doc, uh, Professor David Aldred at Leeds University, and the other being Dr. Ian Maidment at Aston University, and they're both on Twitter. Um, mm. So if you are a pharmacist or about to qualify as a pharmacist, uh, and you want to get involved or learn about how you can be involved with uh, further research or indeed do a PhD, feel free yeah. to um, give them an email. Um, if you go on the NIHR Training Advocates website, you'll see their details there. Yeah, I think you gave some amazing advice. I, I've learned a ton, and I'm sure those listening in have definitely jotted down them names that you've said. And I also agree with you, David. University of Bradford was amazing, and I think we we have excellent training there as well. So um, from one alumni to another, um, I think you're doing amazing as a Bradford alumni, and you are repping Bradford well, um, just like many others are as well. Uh, other so, universities are available, of course. <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> so um in terms of your phd um so how long how many years is your phd david or oh, how, how long are you planning for it to be oh god don't remind me so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so i started in october 2018 uh it's a four-year program um uh, yeah. so by october 2022 i have to submit my thesis typically mm. it's a, it, typically the structure is three years of research and yeah. then and then they allow maximum one year write-up so four years in in the whole program if it's mm. part-time they allow up to seven years to do the same yeah um so yeah I'm, technically uh, as of a couple of weeks time i will have completed two years uh, yeah. so i need to do one final year of collecting data and researching and then write up the, the thesis and then uh It'll be Dr. Dave to you, Sawa. Yeah, Dr. Dave. Oh, it sounds amazing. I, I wish you all the best in it. Um, and many listening may have, in fact, been interviewed by you for part of your PhD study as well. Um, also, um, David, in terms of um, your general practice role, I think it's very good. I think your PhD goes so hand in hand with the current role you're doing. I mean, your role as a clinical general practice pharmacist, do you feel like it's changed at all since starting the PhD? Have you looked at medication and anticholinergic burden a little bit different or have you focused on it more since starting this PhD? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Uh, the PhD has really helped me improve as a, as a pharmacist on a clinical level mm. as well, which is great. And not many other PhDs experience that element. Um, sometimes yeah. you, you end up researching things not really relevant to the kind of front line. Or, um, but yeah, absolutely. My consultations now are just full of ridiculous anticholinergic burden notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but typically, kind of shared shared decisions with patients. Uh, yeah. I I'll, I'll often document with patients that there are potential risks with these medicines and actually mm. um, presenting the potential risks to patients yeah. um, 
gives them more power and empowers them to to make a decision for themselves. I'm not particularly too concerned if they decide, actually, get lost, David. I want to continue with my amitriptyline yeah. 10 milligram. At the end of the day, for me, they've been given the advice. If they don't want mm. to take it, that's fine. Uh, but ultimately, mm. they've been presented the advice. And, and we'll probably try again maybe six yeah. months down the line or or if, if they start to become more frail, for example. Mm. So absolutely, I think it has improved my practice and also hopefully influenced other people in the practice to change their yeah. practice and, and improve how they approach things. But yeah. after all, I mean, ultimately, anticholinergic burden is not everything, but it's one of those, mm. one of the one of the major things we should consider, particularly in older people. Uh, and sometimes it can go overlooked. Yeah. So just in terms of your experience um, with patients, do, do you feel many patients are educated and know about anticholinergic burden or um, in your consultations when you do speak about this topic, is it a new concept to them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say patients are not really accustomed to it, not really aware. But, what, you know, why should they be aware um, mm. unless they're, um, you know, Googling things all night, for example, I mean, there are yeah. certain patients who do call up and say, oh, I read in the paper that this medicine has been associated with dementia. Is this true? And then unfortunately, mm. you, have to, you have to break it to them that, yeah, the studies yeah. do suggest. So um, I think when when I do speak to patients about the potential risks, uh, it's very important that you don't scare them, first of all. You, yeah. and you don't state that it's, it's an imminent risk, but you say it's a potential risk. Um, mm. And then... We, we consider how risky um, we maybe mm. I, I possibly might just say it's I don't know one in a hundred or whatever um, mm. but ultimately just present the potential risk and, and cognitive decline is one of the major ones which um, is one of the reasons why patients will stop a medicine if someone's taking mm. amitriptyline for helping them sleep and they've been yeah. taking they've taken it for 30 years well mm. stating that actually this medicine has been associated with falls cognitive decline yeah hospitalization uh, as we become older this mm. this sometimes triggers them to think more and sometimes on the spot they don't change their mind and that they don't stop the medicine um mm. it might take a few weeks but actually advising them of, of potential risks can be quite empowering yeah um, i think it's very important conversations to be had with patients as well um and i love the shared care approach that you've done with um patients so patients being in partnership with yourself as a clinician and I think that's a way forward as well um educating patients empowering them to make decisions in partnership alongside the clinician and um I feel like that is what is Breck's best practice um to be honest so we've talked a little bit about your PhD um the topic it's on and I think it's really exciting all about the informatics side of things um the development of tools um but a little bit about your role as a general practice pharmacist. So um, I understand that, of of course, your number of days is reduced now um, while you're committing to a full-time PhD. But what would you say your day-to-day -day role is as a general practice pharmacist? Yeah, okay. So I was doing that full-time for about four years before the PhD. Yeah. And um, a typical day-to-day -day activity would be uh, turn up, um, sometimes a little bit late. Uh, and, the <laughs> and then the benefit, benefit of general practice is that you may have your own room and no one's uh, clocking in, clocking you in and out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but ultimately, um, I hope, well, I hope my manager's not listening now. Um, <laughs> so I get there for around nine o'clock-ish. I typically uh, receive or... I go online onto system one and see the tasks that have been sent. Um, okay. And, 
I start reviewing kind of on the day queries from patients or even clinicians or reception, um, all relating to medicines. So it could be, well, one of the big ones at the moment, some HRT is out of stock um, or ranitidine is out of stock. Can we do an alternative? So start tidying up queries like that for about an hour. And then at 10 o'clock, I have a clinic until one o'clock, which is uh, pre-bookable appointments with patients. Um, these appointments will either be triggered by myself whilst doing like a, a level one medication review of the notes without the patient. And I, and I would ping it to reception to say, please book it in with the patient to discuss. Um, but also it could be patients ringing on the day through the triage system if they have a problem. Um, so a variety of appointments. Um, and then after that clinic, uh, I start doing kind of administration work. So discharge letters, medicines reconciliation, optimizing medicines in between clinics. Uh, and then I, I have another clinic in the afternoon as well. Um, and, and in between these clinics, essentially just uh, doing tasks, calling up patients, speaking to clinicians, and overall kind of managing the the pharmaceutical care of, of our patients, really. There's, we have 8,000 patients, so it's quite a hefty task. Um, mm. We have PCN pharmacists now that I oversee. So now, although yeah. I'm not there full time, uh, I am able to oversee a, 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 a larger team now, I suppose, who deliver the work. Um, yeah. So that's my typical day. So uh, it is very exciting to be a general practice pharmacist right now. There's so many different avenues to go down and there's so many different roles and responsibilities. And for myself, when I look at it, um, it's uh, always evolving as well with new roles. Um, so it's a very exciting place to be. Um, it's very good that you're patient facing and also through the phone. Of course, COVID may have affected this um, currently. Um in terms of your sort of um, clinics that you do, are they more, are they assessing patients or more medication reviews, would you say? I'd say when I first started in general practice uh, mm. about five years ago, we were assessing patients. So uh, my area of expertise was, I suppose, hypertension and cardiovascular. So I was doing cardiovascular assessments. But it's yeah. evolved into more of just, I suppose, a pharmacy medicines management role now. So I'll work mm. with the healthcare assistants and the nurses uh, who will mm. deliver those assessments. And I will work with them to manage the medicines. So I would say less so now, particularly yeah. with COVID. But there are, there mm. are occasions where... Um, I will call the patient in myself, check blood mm. pressures or do assessments and prescribe at the same time as a kind of a holistic service. Um, yeah. Our healthcare assistants who can't prescribe, for example, can't deliver that uh, in one go. Mm. Uh, and sometimes the patient may have to come in for two appointments. Uh, so yeah. having a pharmacist prescribing and assessing can have its advantages, really. Um, yeah. But uh, from a business yeah. point of view, uh, in, in a GP partnership, uh, the model would be that a healthcare system may well do the assessments uh, and then yeah. the pharmacist um, would be, be more inclined to do the kind of reviewing of medicines either over the phone or face-to-face -face and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, COVID has impacted us drastically, as we all know. We're all working yeah. those, um, using virtual methods now. So we use a, a software mm. called AccuRx, uh, yeah. which, bol which bolts onto the clinical system and becomes like an encrypted mm channel to speak to the patient either through text message or video call or phone mm. call um, and if we're struggling that way then of course we can invite the patient in um, yeah. but nine times out of ten the patient prefers the phone call uh, particularly if it's yeah. medicines related um, yeah. I mean for doctors it's different they have to maybe assess more or have them face to face but if we're managing mm. medicines with a pre-existing diagnosis for example um, mm. actually more times than not it can be done over the phone in my opinion 
Yeah, I think COVID, it's affected um, the full healthcare landscape. And one thing it definitely is going to do is really sort of ignite the push towards a more digital landscape. And we are seeing investment and um, changes happening already, really. Um, Within general practice, there's so many different healthcare professions from so many different specialities and backgrounds. What would you say is the biggest advantage for any PCN or any general practice to have a pharmacist? What does a pharmacist bring to the table? Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to, you mean, other healthcare professionals? Other prof- yeah, other healthcare professionals, yeah. I think we can see that, of course, the pharmacist is, is the expert in medicines. Uh, other mm. professionals, of course, are very, very knowledgeable in medicines. And that there have been cases where GPs have known more than myself in one particular area, for example. Yeah. But, but more often than not, the pharmacist comes in with a much wider um, skill set, not just clinically or pharmaceutically or pharmacologically, but also either from a business sense or cost effectiveness, mm. but also what's available on the, in the market. So the HRTs, the Renitidines, the, the other professionals may not have that, um, yeah. that kind of string to their bow. Um, so the pharmacist brings this kind of holistic pharmaceutical service to the practice. Yeah. They're able mm. to uh, efficiently manage medicines um, within the practice and often have dedicated appointments purely for medicines, whereas the other yeah. professionals don't have very often a dedicated appointment just for medicines. I think they would think it was a heavenly job if they did. I mean, they, they often mm. get burdened with with other things and um, assessments and referrals and letters. And um, so uh, our practice in particular, uh, I mean, our practice... We're one of the first practices in the region who employed a full-time pharmacist um, yeah. privately without any funding from the schemes um, mm. or the pathways. And they saw firsthand the benefits because we, I was able to offload all the discharge letters, all the clinic mm. letters, any yeah. problems arising from community pharmacy or medicine shortages, uh, but mm. also expand capacity within the practice to, yeah. to, and then more importantly improve uh, patient outcomes for patients from the, yeah. uh, from the from the uh, the medicine, medicines management context yeah i think that's the general move now um within the nhs i mean all the primary care webinars um attending a lot more other healthcare professionals are being pushed into general practice and especially pharmacists with the increased number of funding um and marketing for pharmacists to get into that area um, in terms of yourself as a general practice pharmacist, um, you said that you screen discharge letters. And I know, um, being a secondary care pharmacist, how bad discharge letters can be written. So <laughs> what advice could you give to us um, that are working in secondary care to help out um, yourselves in primary care with regard to um, discharge letters? How long have we got, so uh, Have we got two, two hours? Uh... <laughs> and I know sometimes you may just get one line saying no changes when there's 20 changes that's happened. But um, what, 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 would you, what would you say? What advice would you give to me as a secondary care pharmacist on my discharges for yourself? The biggest one for me is, um, well, at the moment, everything being electronic. Um, mm. uh, that's one yeah. of the biggest things. Um, it's, but I think that's moving that way anyway in the NHS. But the main thing from a clinical perspective is if there's ever any changes or yeah. significant changes, for example, the new addition of an anticoagulant, for example, a very high-risk yeah. medicine, then we need to know why that, <laughs> why that has been prescribed. Sometimes mm. things arrive on a discharge letter um, yeah. and 
God knows what it's for um, or why it's been prescribed. I mean, there have been cases where a Pixaban has arrived, but we don't know whether it was for AF or whether it was for a a VTE or... So we need explanations. And and in my region, the discharges are are normally very good, actually. I'm quite impressed with our local hospital, but there are occasions where things are not very well explained. The other thing is... We don't we don't need ten pages worth of uh, a summary really. We we sometimes get those letters which are just pages and pages. So concise, to the point. Uh, mm. You know what's happened, um, and also the medicines. Just making sure the medicines match what, what the patient arrived from general practice with. Yeah. I mean, secondary care have access now to our medicines on on repeat prescription, for example, the summary care records mm. and so forth. So, you know, typically discharge letters in my region. Um, they'll always have uh, Macrogol on there. They'll always have Senna on there. It's almost like a default mm. discharge letter. Send everyone yeah. out with Senna. Send everyone out in Macrogol. Send everyone mm. out with Codeine in some cases. Cases, But mm. um, for the newly qualified pharmacist or someone who's less experienced, they may take that as you know, put everything on repeat. And that patient yeah. may be on that medicine for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, so just thinking carefully about what goes on the discharge letter and... Mm. Uh, making sure it is actually representative of what patients are taking. Um, but otherwise, yeah. otherwise, I do think you guys do a very good job in secondary care. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the difficulty is, David, a lot of trust pharmacists don't have much access in terms of communication on the discharge letter. I know it's changing in a lot of trust now. Um, and I think communication is key, especially between the two different um, sectors, between primary care, general practice and community pharmacy, because a lot of times, for example, when you mentioned high-risk medications, things like Apixaban being started with no indication written, um, it's, it's just crazy, really. And it's it's something that really we need to improve on, I think, anyway, between primary care and secondary care, the communication aspects between the two teams. And I hope with COVID, with more things becoming digital um, and more hopefully shared um, systems, this can improve as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of um, your PhD, we'll go back to your PhD. I just want to ask, what 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 are the challenges of yourself doing a PhD? What have you found most tough? Mm-hmm. So I think I underestimated Tawa the um, how much I didn't learn at university in terms of yeah. research. Uh, the M Farm mm. degree is. Of course, you do uh, a dissertation, you do some research, but actually it's not to the standard of which you would require to do a PhD, uh, mm. in my opinion, or that was my experience. Um, maybe I was just a bit of a doctor at university, <laughs> uh, but I did get a first class on a degree, so maybe not. Thank you. Uh, and actually did very well in my dissertation, but for some reason I wasn't prepared for this PhD. Um, I, I think there, there was a massive jump really from, for me to go into a PhD. And actually my wife uh, did a PhD and, and my in-laws are both uh, academics. So I am a, mm. aware of uh, what's, uh, what a PhD entails. But for some reason, I had a bit of a shock in my first year. Um, so that was a big challenge for me, getting up to standards with uh, the literature, the research area, becoming an expert in that field within one year, I suppose, um, mm. really knowing the literature inside out, but also knowing the gaps, because the gaps are important, yeah. because you need to address those gaps in your research. Mm. So they were the main challenges for me, um, also academic writing, referencing, these yeah. are all big challenges. But, yeah. but also on a personal level, um, you know, I've got a young family, I've got two kids now, um, wife. Mm going back to do a PhD 
uh, after seven, eight years of clinical practice where I was enjoying mm. decent salaries and uh, mortgage, cars. Um, yeah. It was a real kind of financial challenge. Um, mm. uh, so balancing working life alongside the PhD was tricky. I mean, particularly yeah. in, in the pandemic at the moment, I'm having to work at home to do my PhD and with two kids running around. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing having having all this time with our families, but at the same time, I do feel a little bit disadvantaged as well because I'm not that student who's in the student halls uh, watching yeah. um, watching Netflix all day and then doing a bit of PhD work. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think that's how most university projects went, mainly Netflix and 20% doing um, the work. But uh, one thing though, David, honestly, I do admire people that do further postgraduate study and know there's a lot of sacrifices both in terms of work-life balance family commitments and also financial so uh, I think it's very inspiring and that's why I I wanted to get you on to share someone that's doing a PhD and to show people that you can do it even if you've got a family even if you've got kids there's always avenues if you want to do something definitely go out and um, do it for sure yeah, just going back to that very briefly, yeah. I mean, I don't want to get the violins out and just start, you know, putting <laughs> a downer on this. I mean, absolutely, a PhD, uh, it's a big sacrifice, and but it'll be the best thing you'll do academically. You'll become an expert yeah, in, that, in mm. that field. The best thing about it is that it's all novel work. It has to be novel work, otherwise you won't get a PhD. So mm. you, you really are the global expert in that particular research title that you're doing. Um, and you know it opens up so many new doors so many new opportunities i'm literally in meetings with top professors and academics uh Mm. up and down the country uh Mm. one of them being a chap called uh, professor um, sir pierre mohammed he's a national figure in the nhs pharmacologist but i'm in meetings with him uh, every week at the moment and you know in my time when i was a community pharmacist uh, (laughs) i would never have thought i would have had these opportunities really yeah um Mm. So if you are interested in further research or doing a PhD, then um, yes, of course, there are challenges like any other further um, postgraduate work. But of course, uh, it will be it will be worthwhile long term. Mm, Definitely. And I think just the fact that you are liaising and networking with very senior and very um, sort of specialist um, professionals in certain areas, it, it opens up a opens up so many doors um and i I know you'll do very well and i'm very excited to see in what date did you give to me 2022 that's your deadline david hopefully (laughs) in 2022 we get your phd thesis coming out um and i'm sure you will do very well um and it will open up doors and opportunities um it seems like you're very passionate about the area as well and that's the main thing I've always said it's always short-term sacrifices for long-term gains and mm. definitely do something that you enjoy and do something that you want to specialize in because you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life, um, whichever area that you want to do. So definitely um, good luck to you on that as well. Um, so David, I know you mentor um, some new PCM pharmacies, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're probably good at giving advice. Um, could you, a lot of our listeners are newly qualified pharmacists or pre-regs, what would you say from your experiences as a pharmacist, what advice would you give to someone that's just qualified or just starting the pre-reg? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so main advice would be to maintain a network. So don't be alone. Don't be afraid to kind of reach out to other people, whether it's myself on Twitter or other people. Um, join a network such as the PCPA mm. uh, if you're going into general practice, for example. Um, if you have any questions or concerns, there is a, a massive network of people who can help you and who are willing to help you. There's all sorts of Telegram and WhatsApp groups these days to support. Yeah. I would definitely advise that. So maintain maintaining networks. Secondly, continually improving your knowledge. So reading around uh, the topics and, and building up your expertise. But don't be afraid to use resources and literature when you're on the front line. I mean, as pharmacists, we're, we're taught to use the BNF and other, other resources. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm constantly using other literature to form a decision. Uh, and there's no mm. shame in that. There's no shame in saying to a patient, actually, I'd like to just you know review this a bit further and i'll get back to you tomorrow morning if that's okay mm. um but i think um you know and just just work hard and uh, stay committed yeah. uh, it is challenging at first um but i think it will pay off and things will become easier i mean general practice mm. is quite a big uh, quite a big jump from community pharmacy it's a completely different world particularly mm. with all the access to data uh, yeah. all the clinical records um it, mm. it took me it took me six months to to kind of really get into it when i was uh, first starting out um so yeah that's uh, and of course mm. if anyone wants any advice or support then i'm more than happy to help on twitter um yeah that's that's my advice yeah that's some great advice that you've mentioned there david particularly about having tools and resources ready and available and bookmarked i think a key point is us as pharmacists, especially newly qualified ones, we won't know everything. Even your most senior and specialist pharmacists won't know everything. Our job is that we can find the resources and the tools needed to answer the question. So for anyone that's newly qualified, it's a real skill to learn. If you get asked a question by a patient, a clinician or another healthcare professional, if you don't know the answer, just say that you don't know, but you know where to look for the information and find the answer and that you can get back to them. It's important also to give them a time frame when you're going to go back to them as well with the answer. So thank you, David, with them amazing tips there. Well, yeah, and just going back to what you said there, I mean, I, yeah. I've been on the receiving end of uh, feedback when I've uh, basically did my way through uh, pre-reg with <laughs> when, I, when I didn't know when I didn't know the answer to something. Uh, so my pre-reg tutor was notorious for basically having a dig at me. Um, <laughs> but uh, so in my pre-reg, I learned firsthand basically that actually it's probably best that you own up to it that you don't know the answer. Go get yeah. the answer. Sometimes mm. it only takes five minutes. Even if you're in community pharmacy, if there's a long queue outside the pharmacy uh, waiting for your prescription, it's always worthwhile just to mm. take that extra few minutes, work out the answer, even if it's calling up a friend or a manager mm. or whatever. Um, but, but don't be afraid just to find the answer because at the end of the day, patient yeah. safety is, is paramount as well. Definitely. Okay, so just to finish, David, I know you halfway through your PhD, but where do you see yourself in five years' time Five years time. Okay, so in five years, I will have finished my PhD. And I mean, typically after doing a PhD, people tend to go into academia or a postdoc mm. role uh, or do further research. But actually, I'm going to leave it open to other opportunities, really. I mean, personally, my goal is not to spend too much time in academia full time. I'd like to do this yeah. mix of uh, clinical practice and mm. research. But I think where I will end up is most likely in the pharmaceutical industry, in some kind of health informatics kind of post mm. where we're developing tools to support safer prescribing, maybe. 
Um, mm. Or po- possibly either in the NHS or NHS Digital or yeah. so- someone who's kind of delivering patient care and safer practices through through health informatics uh, and improving. Mm. But who knows? Well, let's see. But I, I think that's where yeah. I'll probably end up and probably less likely to be um, in the university setting full time. Yeah, I'm sure whatever you put your eyes to and your mind to, you'll do very well. And just the informatic and digital side is currently booming at the moment and there's so many opportunities. So I think it's a very good route um, for, for you to go down as well. Um, so, David, um, if anyone wanted some advice or wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way to contact yourself? Yeah, so um, just search for my name in Twitter, if you like. So it's David Medizade. Uh, my... Uh... My username is dm underscore zade, so Z-A-D-E-H. Uh, so feel mm. free to send me a, a message privately or, or even uh, publicly uh, or even go through Sawa. Um, I'm more than happy to yep, receive that way as well. But yeah, if anyone wants any support, particularly newly qualified or pre-regs who are about to qualify or even seasoned pharmacists who <laughs> want to try um, try a research or get into research, th- there are avenues um, to go down as a bit of a tester into research mm. before you make the leap. Um, and, and maybe I can give some advice around that, really, uh, trying mm. before you buy, if you like. Mm. So I want to say a big thank you, David, for joining this podcast today. Honestly, I've learned tons and took away valuable learning lessons around anticholinergic burden um, and the importance it has, um, especially us as pharmacists, to focus on this area. Also, I'm sure myself and many have learned a lot from you sharing your current PhD study. And I'm, I'm very grateful for you sharing it, sharing your challenges that you find with it and your personal challenges and also willing to help anyone out as well. So best of luck with the PhD study, David. Thank you so much for joining us um, today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening, guys. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you, Sawa. Honoris. Thank you, David. Um, so everyone, thank you to everyone that's listened in today to another one of our podcast episodes. I hope you all have took away some learning points and reflect on your own practice following this episode. Um, we plan to have a lot more podcasts coming up with other specialist pharmacists and pharmacists in a wide variety of sectors, including prison pharmacy, mental health, uh, pharmacists in academia and within industry. So I encourage any feedback given to us so we can continuously improve and deliver better content for you all. And to keep up to date with the latest updates and podcasts, please subscribe and follow us on our Twitter and Instagram at pharma underscore sense. Thank you once again um, for everyone listening in. Thank you.